Welcome to the Swapflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. I am James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassadin. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflix. Can you hear the weed bristling in the background? <laughs> we're, all, we're all wearing diaphanous gowns, um, threading our Mother. fingers through the hair. Does nature surround us or do we surround nature? <laughs> <laughs> well, we watched a bunch of arty, slow movies with very little plot this week, which is good because there's not really much of that going on in movie theaters right now. Like, yeah. I feel like it's all superhero stuff and live action Disney remakes and like Fast and Furious. You do have the Master Gardener, you know. That's true. Yeah. I guess there are art films I'm just not interested in. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I do not want to see them. Right. Uh, I consider Fast X a superhero film. Yeah. It it goes in there. They're invincible. They quip. Vin Diesel is a superhero. (laughs) Have y'all managed watching anything new? Because I can't find anything I'm interested in out there. The only new movie I've watched recently, I watched on Netflix, was uh, Missing, which is a sequel to Searching from a few years back. It's, you know, we love those kind of tech interface movies. And it's one of those, like, the mom goes missing and her daughter has to, like, use resources Mm -hmm. over the internet to try and figure out what happened. And I didn't care for Searching that much. And I really, really liked this one. It was a lot more fun and it was more trashy and yeah. it was a good time and I think everybody would enjoy it. Yeah. I really want to see that. I really liked it. I think it was a better angle to be from the perspective of someone who is literate with the internet. Um you know, the first movie was from the perspective of a father trying to find his daughter. Um uh, it's just really fun to watch this girl like work through trying to guess her mother's password and like finding like somebody's last location through their Google, you know, like she's really just quickly navigating the um, electric sphere, which is very cool. It's in like, that was very scary to me, like how easily you can know all that info. Like it seemed pretty true to life that there's so much stuff available online that you could like solve a murder mystery from your home office like that's crazy that's some good like text subtext tension in that film is like she's showing off all these tools of like how to solve this like mystery case from her living room and in the movie it's played for like this heroic Mm -hmm. like triumph that she's like finding her mom through all these like public security cameras and ring cameras and like uh you know social media pages and like you're both kind of cheering her on like wow how like ingenious and like innovative Mm -hmm. she is but in the back of your mind you're like also like there's Uh, nowhere to hide this is everything i do is like recorded somewhere and there's no going back yeah yeah i liked it a lot more than searching as well it's way trashier like Mm -hmm. there's so many twists and it's a great kind of mystery where like every time you think you know where it's going it goes there immediately and then says that's wrong and then adds another twist like it's got a lot of layers of like just trashy lifetime thrill. Yeah, I genuinely did not know where it was headed at any given moment, which yeah. is a, a fun, fun ride. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's the, really the only thing new that I've <laughs> seen recently. We watched, uh, we did watch The Little Mermaid because we were going to see the new one. And then when I went to go get tickets, the theater was pretty much sold out. And the idea of 
being in a theater surrounded <laughs> by, by children, children. <laughs> opening weekend yeah. of the little mirror. I was like, no, you know what? We're not going to do this. Yeah. So. There was 5% of my body wanted to be there so I could like sing. I, I imagine these girls would be singing the songs and I wanted to sing yeah. with a bunch of children. But um, then I was like, I thought better of it. Do you think the kids have like grown up with the 80s Little Mermaid? Well, I don't know. Actually, I, I imagine I their parents so. their parents did, so therefore they probably put it on for their kids. Like they probably on Disney Plus or whatever yeah. throw it on. I feel like Disney's so timeless that like kids watched it just as much as we yeah. did. But yeah. like I, I guess I think that theoretically, and now that I'm actually thinking about the children that I know, like they're all into Frozen or Moana yeah. or like the contemporary I'm sh- stuff. Yeah, but Computer I'm sure animation. That, right. But I would imagine that like people my age have shown their children The Little Mermaid, yeah. you know. But I wonder if the kids are like, "Oh, this looks stupid." Like it do- <laughs> this doesn't look as good as Mona or like if they're used to the computer generated. That's my assumption stuff. is like the only reason they keep doing these like quote-unquote live action remakes is they they are like computer animated remakes where all the like funny side characters are yeah. CG animals and creatures and like that's more of like the template the little kids are used to. Because otherwise, there's really no reason to make these right. movies again other than they're just printing money. Well, I think it's the printing money. <laughs> yeah. I do take the cynical view of that. Right. Yeah, it's just to reintroduce it every few years to profit off of yeah. it. I just really don't like the live action. Like, I don't know. Like, Flounder looks so strange <laughs> and unsettling. I just, I feel like it works so much better in a fully animated realm. Like, even if it's not the hand-drawn animation style from, you know, the late 80s, you know, I don't mind the animation style like Moana and Frozen. So I could see that, but just don't give me, like, real-ish fish. Well, like, Lion King, like, there's a difference between seeing an actual lion say dialogue and seeing, like, a cute lion that someone hand-animated it loses something yeah. and you know yeah it just doesn't work as well when you're trying to integrate real actors with like cgi like fantastical things it's there's something uncanny about it have they like ever like done a remake where they've like pixared a hand drawn animation yeah, i don't think so not I that know. i could think yeah. of but like the live action ones are not that different cuz like they do have cg right. animals and stuff yeah i just like I just like it when it's a fully animated world, even right. if it's not the old Disney style. Like, I just don't like the mix of people and I don't know. The clips I saw from the new Little Mermaid just looked very dour yeah. compared to like the bright, colorful yeah. animation. It looks like goth Little Mermaid. Like, it's dark and creepy. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited well, I, for it. Yeah, I, I was reading they intentionally did that to kind of cover up some of the CGI by oh. having it be kind of dark under the sea. Yeah, you can kind of cover up that stuff, but yeah, yeah. it just looks like a, a downer. I am interested in seeing it, but the, I did hear one of the new songs that they added, and it's really bad. It's like no bangers. Aquafina plays. Ooh, does she rap? Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> she and she raps like a Lin Manuel Miranda oh, song. Oh, <laughs> It's really bad, <laughs> but I don't know. I still want to see it. I liked the original a lot as a kid. It's one of the more like ones I'm fond of still, even though yeah. I've become very like disinterested in Disney stuff. I remember watching Moana in the theater because everyone was like praising it mm-hmm. and thinking in the first 30 minutes, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and I just like sat through the next hour, like, I don't understand why I bought a ticket for yeah. this. But she had a good time. No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I liked Moana a lot. <laughs> 
there was like maybe a brief stretch where it turns into like a Mad Max Fury Road spoof out of nowhere. I was like, okay, I get why I would be interested in this. But you otherwise, like I was the, like, the I drag crab. I love the drag <laughs> crab. I do like Jermaine Clement in general. Right. He's very funny. Also, uh, lyrics by Little Memo while we're in yeah. that one, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Little Mermaid is a kid like emotionally... I got her obsession with stuff and like her horror right. tendencies. Yes, totally. And like that scene where her dad smashes her stuff is like so oh, infuriating and yeah, sad to I was- me <laughs> in a way that I've never yeah. gotten over. Yeah. I was yelling at the screen. I was like, no, what are you doing? You're going right. to drive her away. <laughs> they also, one other thing is they took out a section of Ursula's song about where she's like trying to convince Ariel that she doesn't need a voice to appeal to men. Got your pretty face. Yeah. Body language. Right. Exactly. They cut that out of the remake and me and James were talking about how I, I feel like that's a mistake. You know, like I feel like that part of Ursula's song is like, it's important to see that coming from the perspective of a villain, like to showing like, people that this is young people that this is not true like you need to maintain your voice but and i think they took it out because they didn't want anybody anybody to think that like oh you shouldn't speak for yourself but that was like the yeah. whole purpose of the yeah it's, part it's, in it's the, like pretty right? clear in the original that ursula is manipulative right, and evil. Right. so her saying that i feel like you're not giving kids the benefit of the doubt with like critical thinking skills right. to understand that. You can figure out she's the bad guy. Right, yeah. yeah. She's trying to trick me. <laughs> right. Here's my question. Like, why do we know so much about this movie that none of us have seen? Like, I, that's part of why there's nothing in the theaters in my mind right now is like, yeah. all these movies are so over-marketed that like, yeah, I feel that's like there's true. no surprise in yeah. actually going to see them. No mystery. Like, could close my eyes and picture all of Fast X in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. weird with... Little Mermaid, it was like the only reason I wanted to see it is because I was reading all these articles on the internet about it and like forming opinions about a movie that I hadn't even seen. Right. So I was like, yeah. all right, well, I got to go. But maybe that's like how the machine, the <laughs> totally. marketing machine works. It's like it put out in. tons of articles. Hey, uh, the hot debate about the Little Mermaid. Let's you got to see it. Right. I am trying so hard not to get sick of Barbie before it actually opens. Like, I'm very, yeah. very excited for so it. So much Barbie content already, and it's like you got to give it a couple months before it comes out. Yeah, like, I don't want to be like disgusted with Barbie. I keep digging by into July. it every time I see it. I'm like, yes, <laughs> I want to read this. I'm excited for that. One. I want more. I think we all are. I am very excited. I just don't want to see any more behind the scene photos or yeah. early trailers or like it's gonna know, lose its magic Easter eggs if we go and, in like knowing all the shit. Yeah. Yeah. Debates about her foot. <laughs> I've been seeing that online. Oh boy! Oh my God! <laughs> foot Twitter is all over it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> well, what else have y'all been watching? <laughs> so I watched a movie that is not a new movie. It's almost a hundred years old. It is called The Last Laugh. It was uh, released in 1924, um, and it was directed by F. W. Murnau. And starring Emil Jannings as a hotel portier, who is apparently the first actor to win the Academy Award for Best Actor. But he, so he plays this old um, hotel doorman, and he is getting older. He is having trouble pulling luggage off of the cars. Um, so he gets demoted to a um, washroom attendant, and it's really devastating. For him, he like steals his hotel doorman uniform and pretends to everyone he lives with that he's still a doorman. And they find out that he's not and they uh, mock him mercilessly. And the film ends with this epilogue of him like 
overcoming his his station and like he becomes fabulously wealthy but i watched it because it was one of the first films to use like a moving camera um so it has like pans and tilts and they used all of the the uh, cinematographer was carl freund and he and murnau collaborated to like do a lot of really interesting shots like they had this shot where i think uh freund had the camera attached to his chest and he like rode out of an elevator in a bicycle and then another shot where they like lowered the camera down on a wire and then they reversed it in editing to like make it seem as if someone was like being kind of like pulled up from the ground um and there's this like really beautiful dream sequence where this uh, doorman gets super drunk and he's having this dream that he can like (laughs) lift luggage all of these doormen are like struggling to lift this piece of luggage and they can't do it. And he comes over and he lifts it. And it's this like, it's as if it's made of styrofoam and he's like tossing it into the <laughs> air and it's kind of tilted and, and bleary and blurred as if almost like you're looking at something with like tears in your eyes. And it's really beautiful. And I don't know. I just, I was curious about it because it was like, I just take for granted that, you know, pans are a thing and, I'm getting more interested in like those foundational kind of moments in film that really changed the trajectory. And it was a really like sweet, emotional German film. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I really liked it. You've been dwelling in like German expressionism and yeah. like, pre-code Hollywood, really foundational texts recently. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, d- I'm trying to like really dig into the past and like specifically with German expressionism like that's something that's always been like that's a style that's always been interesting to me but I've just appreciated it aesthetically without really trying to consume that media so you know I feel like I did not do all of my homework in film and I'm trying to like make up for lost time I appreciate that you're doing this without making us watch Birth of a Nation (laughs) 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 don't thank me yet Brandon Um, we got close enough with that fucking uh, D'Souza movie where they showed footage of it like coming to life out of the screen (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I I would recommend this uh, this guy's like his acting is he's like so devastated also it's a totally silent film there are no real title cards this guy is like so expressive and he has these like beautiful curly mutton chops i i really really like the film i feel like it's a good historical kind of um flashback so uh britney what have you been watching so nothing new but some old things I recently watched Breakdown from 1997. Kurt Russell? It's Kurt Russell. Fucking love that movie. Oh, it is so <laughs> good. Fucking love it. Yes. It's one of my favorites. So, yeah, and that was like one of mine as well. Um, watched that for the first time, and it reminded me so much of like The Hitcher. Yes. And like The Hills Have Eyes, where it's this, you know, you're on this like desert road, which mm. is already scary because like everything's like 30 miles apart, and he's this like city guy in his new jeep um with massachusetts plates and he's like you know driving with his wife they're moving to um san diego and he starts to get kind of like sleepy at the wheel and someone cuts out in front of him and he almost hits him and they're like all right pay no mind whatever you know it is what it is and they go to a gas station and that truck's there and he starts to taunt him and then 
like they get back on the road the car breaks down like all at once like everything shuts off and the truck passes them kind of like does like a cool dual thing where it's like the truck almost has its own like villain persona yeah yeah it's like looking at them from afar on the road and then um this like 18 wheeler comes by and kind of saves the day wife goes with 18 wheeler driver to go to like a diner to call like a tow truck he stays with the car wife never comes back he tries to find her and he starts to question his sanity a little bit where not really him but like everyone's like what are you talking about like she's not here and then the 18 wheeler driver is like i don't know who you are man i don't know what you're talking about oh my god i think he's played jt walsh is the actor who's one of my favorite like character actors from that and he's like very very good in this he's so scary in here because he's so emotionless and he's also like this like family man yeah which makes it even more disgusting um so yeah and then you just watch like a sweaty kurt russell just <laughs> fighting his way through the desert to like find his wife and then like get away from like this group of like psychotic men who are trying to like you know squeeze every scent out of him and like yeah i, I was thinking about him. this movie when i watched u-turn recently the oliver stone it's got that same like sweaty desert yeah energy but it's shot like a cartoon <laughs> like every shot is just like disorienting yeah but then, no, this is just a, yeah, it's a really good thriller that, like, I've watched it fairly recently. I kept thinking of all these other movies that I've seen since that remind me of it. Like, it's got Detour going on. Yes. It's got some duel going on, like you mentioned. Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Hitcher. California with a K, the Brad Pitt movie. Yeah, I oh, love that yes. movie. Roadside thrillers, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know what else would you call it? That's it, I think. It's a All right. great oh genre. <laughs> That's one of, like, I feel like the two most stressful genres for me are, like, interpersonal sabotage and roadside thrillers. <laughs> like, Well, this is a uh, little bit of both, because, like, no! said with the, them, like, being like, what are you talking about? Like, I never saw <laughs> you with, like, oh, uh, like, stuff where you yeah. just That's kind of how Duel insane. was, like, when he goes to that, like, diner. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. And everyone's like, what are you freaking yeah. out about? Crazy dude, go yeah. away. sandwich. This is probably the best thing I've seen like Kurt Russell do. Like this cool. was like a Kurt Russell showcase. Yeah. A Kurt Russell vehicle, if you will. Oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um I also watched this other movie. I've been like looking for comfort movies to watch like before I go to bed cuz I'm trying to like weed myself off of like watching reality TV before I go to bed cuz that's been driving me nuts. Mm-hmm. And I've been like leaning towards like uh, Kirstie Alley, late 80s, early 90s oh. movies. And there was this really horrible one that I watched called Sibling Rivalry from like 1990, where she plays this meek, like housewife who's kind of like quirky. And her husband is a doctor played by Scott Bakula. He's like this very vanilla doctor who's like, ugh. And his whole family, including, like, his sister played by Carrie Fisher, like, they're all physicians and they all, like, undermine her. And she runs into this guy in a grocery store and it's Sam Elliott with his Sam Elliott mustache. Uh. And they go to a hotel room and she fucks him to death. And then there's a guy who is a blind salesman, like, he sells blinds. And somehow their worlds collide in this hotel room and they're like oh no he's dead what do we do and they're both like stupid and goofy and they're like i don't know let's put like 
my vitamins and laxatives down his throat so everyone thinks that he tried to kill himself by overdosing because I don't want to find out that I had an affair and I killed him because I had sex with him. It's so strange. It is so weird. And I watched all of it. It was enter- <laughs> I don't know why it was entertaining to me. But um, there's supposed to be this romance between her and her husband where it's her husband's supposed to be like, man, I guess I never really appreciated you and I love you now. And that kind of happens, but it's so forced and strange that it's just very uncomfortable. That Every- was fun. <laughs> Everything about that movie sounds convoluted. Yeah. And baffling. <laughs> and- I, I, I feel confused, but intrigued. But intrigued. Yeah. There's just like, there's so many characters to focus on that don't mean anything. And then we're supposed to like love them all mm-hmm. and find them funny. I don't know. Um, <laughs> So, well, Brandon, have you been watching anything better than that? <laughs> I've been watching a bunch of 80s movies set in strip clubs. Amazing. Oh, right. uh, I've been, like, digging into that milieu. Uh, I love all, everything you're saying. Because uh, we have an upcoming movie of the month on A Night in Heaven, which oh. was, like, kind of like this prototype for Magic Mike from the I 80s. I fucking loved that movie It's pretty movie great. So much. So I've been looking for other movies, like, along those lines. And I found two that are very good. One was called Stripper from 1986. And it reminded me a lot of The Real Cancun, which we watched for this show, where like it's kind of a prototype for reality TV, where it's profiling these like six female strippers from the 80s and just asking them about their lives and like why they strip for money. And like some of them treat it like an art form, some of them treat it like they're only saving grace for why they're not on welfare anymore. Like it, it's like a pretty like basic documentary about any profession like it's it's really just like taking these women at like face value and then the other half of it is staged in this reality tv kind of way where like they're all in this competition for the first annual golden g-string awards in las (laughs) vegas wow and like it's hard to tell what's staged and what's not with this competition like all of the women that are interviewed and profiled in the movie happen to be like finalists in this competition. So it's like, was the competition first and then they like interviewed the women and made it look like it was flipped the other way around? Or was the competition completely staged for the movie just yeah. to give it a sense of structure? Um, I don't have an answer for that, but like post reality TV, that kind of like kayfabe question is not that complicated anymore i feel like a lot of reviews at the time were like oh this movie's a little bit of bullshit and like dishonest but i feel like we're all pretty used to you know waving that off with documentary footage now where it's like it's okay that some of it's a little fake and staged if the people are real and they're like real moments Mm -hmm. um and it's a pretty good anthropological study of like what being a stripper in the 80s was like for these women so that one was really good and like a, a fun discovery but the other one that like really blew my mind was Flashdance from 1983. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. It is so good. It's fabulous. (laughs) So I could imagine being like a 15-year-old in the 80s and finding this to be like the most aspirational movie out there because the premise is that this 18-year-old steel mill worker slash stripper, (laughs) so she has two jobs at 18, uh, wants to get into ballet school. And like... uh, She's friends with other people at the strip club who also have like side projects. Like her bestie is a figure skater. And then her bestie's boyfriend who works in the kitchen at the strip club is a stand-up comedian who tells quote unquote Polak jokes because he's a Polish guy. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe that hasn't aged super well, but like there's something about 
this aspirational like living in the city with all these people who want to be artists and she lives in this warehouse space and like what's really exceptional about it is that it's shot like a feature length music video Mm -hmm. like when she's working in the steel mill everything is purple smoke and sparks (laughs) and like when she's doing strip routines and her like her coworkers are doing strip routines, it just turns into like high fantasy, impossible dance routines where like it just completely breaks from reality and goes in that full like kind of like in the women from the 40s when it becomes like a fashion show that's outside of reality. Yeah. Like it really just like doesn't care about whether or not these could be staged. Uh, it's just more like setting the movement of dance to music on screen in like mm-hmm. a high fantasy way. Yeah, like the soundtrack for Flashdance is insanely like important, and yeah. it was it was just as like or close to being just as successful as the movie. Like when people think of Flashdance, right. they think of like the cassette tape they had that went along with it. You know, I did notice that the opening song uh, has like. In a world made of steel is like one of the lyrics. Yeah. Because she's a welder at night (laughs) during the day. Yeah, yeah. And also directed by Adrian Lin, who we have talked about. That's where I was going eventually, is that (laughs) I've been trying to like Adrian Lin movies for years now. Like, he makes movies that seem like they should be for me. And I can't get into his work. Like, I don't like Fatal Attraction or Nine and a Half Weeks or Indecent Proposal as much as I should. And... This has all of the, like, erotica of those films, but, like, without any of the misogyny. And, like, it swaps out the misogyny for this, like, aspirational, like, young woman's life in the city kind of stuff. Yeah. And it, like, really works. And in the past year, I saw this and Jacob's Ladder for the first time. And I think there is only two, like, fully successful films. And I like this one even more than Jacob's Ladder, to be honest. And I do think it was ahead of its time in the sense that, like you were saying, it feels like a music video, which I think some critics at that time gave it shit for. And now we sort of accept that as like a style of movie. Yeah. It's what movies are supposed to be. Like, it's it's full fantasy. Uh, Tony Scott also got a lot of shit for making his movies look like that at the time. And I think if you watch... Okay, this is a, not a popular opinion, but if you watch the original Top Gun which got a lot of shit for looking like MTV, looks fucking incredible compared to the new one, which looks like, I don't know, a fucking episode of Jag or something. It looks like dog shit. <laughs> like, uh, I, I love that like complete digression from reality in these movies. Like, yeah. It just completely disregards the real world and that setting and like gives you the full fantasy of what this woman's life would yeah. be like if you were like able to live it which you are not (laughs) it's completely out of your reach but if you could how amazing (laughs) i just thought she was like such when i saw flash dance for the first time i thought she was such a cool person like she's such an interesting character like she strips but she has this like very butch style and she is like pretty pretty liberated like doesn't really care what people think about her and is like totally badass and honest and i was like this is who i want to be like i want to work in <laughs> yes. a steel mill and uh strip at night that ending is so powerful and i cry every time i see it even though like it's obvious that there is like a male double that is doing like a lot of yeah. this like dance stuff yeah like i just overlook it and i'm just like sobbing it's that irene cara song <laughs> when i watched it for the first time like when there's iconic movies like that that you haven't seen, you sort of question, like, is this overhyped? Like, right. You know, and that final dance sequence I was waiting, I was like, all right, I know it's coming. 
this is a big scene. And like when it actually happened, I was like, oh, holy shit. Like <laughs> I see why this is so iconic. Like you understand. Right. It also reminded me of the Paula Abdul video for Cold Hearted Snake. Uh, David Fincher directed. <laughs> and I watched that directly after. Yeah. When she's like auditioning her like dance routine for the record execs. And they're like uncomfortable with how sexy it is. Like mm-hmm. it's very similar Ooh. payoff. So, you know, Fincher ripped off Adrian Line. <laughs> That's what I'm saying here. It's the most important thing. Uh, and I guess I wanted to bring up that director and my struggles with his work because that's that is good the main segue. topic of today yes uh, we're talking about terrence malick a filmmaker i think we all have mixed feelings on but yes. I, I think the project of this episode was like trying to get into malick right. cracking malick just to understand <laughs> yeah yeah well we'll get into it we're gonna into the weeds literally in this episode <laughs> and the into weed. the weed in, <laughs> into the weeds <laughs> yeah yeah and all that's coming up to you right, right now, now. It was a, uh, a really interesting experience because this was not normal um, film production. There were no generators. There was no noise. It was a very sp- small and sparse crew. The kids had never read the script. They would pick out their clothes that day. And, and we'd come in and just do a couple of takes. We weren't going off a script. We were as a, as a springboard for the scene. But it could go in any direction. And, and Terry Malick is, was looking for those those moments of um, when, when you when you trip up, when you you know the the, the human moments that that happen in the day. He almost wanted mistakes, or at least mistakes. Yes, he's yes, yes, the perfection of mistakes. So I remember back in 2011, me and Brandon very excited to see a movie that got a lot of praise, maybe the most like hyped up I've been for a movie in my adult life up until that point. And it was Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. And I walked away very confused as to what all these critics were talking about. And I was like, I don't think I understand Terrence Malick. And I basically gave up on him as a filmmaker. I was like, I don't think his movies are for me. And But I always thought back at, like, was I wrong? Like, seeing it pop up on like sight and soundless it won the palm door it won you know it was nominated for best picture i was like maybe i just wasn't in the right headspace like i want to revisit not only tree of life but terrence malick because i have noticed filmmakers adopting his style and obviously he's been very influential he has talked about as like one of the great directors <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry to break you this up, but like yeah. the image that's already coming to mind is in one of the Avengers like movies. There's a shot of like the villain yeah. dragging his fingers <laughs> through like a wheat field. It's gotten that high up the chain. You yeah. Know? I, and I was thinking of the shot in like Gladiator. Remember there's that shot in Gladiator of him touching the grass. And like I've seen a lot of like amateur kind of student films right. that you're like, that's Ter- you're doing Terrence Malick. Like it is a style that is so like, you know it when you see it. And I'm like, this guy is influencing like a whole generation of filmmakers. I really want to try to understand the love of Terrence Malick. So a little bit about him. He's, there's not like a whole lot of information really about his personal life because he is kind of reclusive. Um, He did graduate with like a master's in philosophy, graduated from like the AFI film conservatory, like the same year as David Lynch, apparently Uh, had two very big 
hits that we'll actually talk about later. Badlands, which was his first film, and then Days of Heaven. And then he just dropped off the face of the earth for 20 years. And so this mythology started to get built up. Like, where is this guy? Why is like this great director not making movies? And then in the 90s, he came out with Thin Red Line, which was a very well-received uh, war film. And I think that's where he really started to adopt his style, the Malick style. And then ever since then, he's kind of been churning movies out at a somewhat regular, normal pace. And it, he's kind of towards the end of his career now. And I think a lot of critics are kind of questioning, has he gotten better or worse over time? And, all, and anyway, so this film, Tree of Life, I do think is a good one to start with because it is kind of quintessential Malick. Like when people talk or think about Malick, they're not necessarily talking about Badlands. I don't think he had fully gotten his style yet, but this movie is totally like talking about the biggest questions of life. It's like, he's like a philosopher's filmmaker, a transcendental filmmaker. He's poetic, this, that, and this movie is kind of the centerpiece of all that. It involves a sequence of the entire evolution of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a pretty good place to start. Um, but it really centers around this family, the day-to-day life of this family in Austin, Texas in the fifties. And it is like somewhat autobiographical it stars Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain. It's really about this boy who is torn between like the compassion of his mother and the sternness of his father. And there's also modern day stuff with Sean Penn, who is the adult version of the boy. He's kind of reflecting on his past and it is doing the Malick thing that we'll see in pretty much all these films where it's mostly a lot of voiceover. It's a lot of editing around action, a lot of improvising with the actors, a lot of very whispery narration about big questions about life and redemption and all the biggest questions of the universe. And so watching this film again, I still didn't really get it. I, I, I think I appreciated it a little bit more than when we first saw it in theaters, but I still struggle with it. And I don't know, I kind of wanted to open it up to you guys to see. So it, any thoughts on your first Malik? I don't know how I feel about it. So I liked the, the tranquility of it because it somehow like it, my head was so busy because it made me question so much shit, but there wasn't that much going on. But then there was like, it was big shit, big universe shit where I don't know. I'm like, is there God? Is it the universe? Is God nature? Holy shit. Like <laughs> I just kept like thinking about it, but I, I kind of liked it. It was not hypnotic. I don't think that's the word for it, but I found it like meditative yeah. where it is. Yeah. The plot didn't matter much to me at all. Um, but I did like how, all of the acting was like just natural. It didn't feel like this forced script almost. It just felt like I was watching shit happen. Well, and that 
to get into that, so his style of directing is very much very little script, shoot yeah. a ton of footage, and then edit it in post. And okay. I think that's getting at the heart of what I struggle with with him as a filmmaker, because you'll see that in all the movies, where, except for Badlands. But that is definitely his late period stuff, is just like, get these actors in a room, don't really give them any lines, just tell them, you know, improvise, I'm going to film it, I'm going to like swoon in, I'm going to go around you, I'm going to go on top of you. Like the camera is very fluid and you get all that footage and you sit on it for like two or three years and meticulously like edit it in a way to make it this like evocative, poetic, and it can be very effective. Like I think there are moments in this movie, like you were saying that are meditative and cross over into like, transcendence almost spiritual but there's other parts where it's tedious and like the sean penn stuff where this rich guy is just walking around these big buildings looking lost i mean it's tough and i think we're going to come back to that idea in like every single one of these movies and depending on the viewer i guess it has like varying mileage that style of like just shooting a bunch of random stuff and then cutting the movie, and then recutting the movie, and then issuing the movie out in the world, and then recutting it again, because you're not sure what you were trying to do or say in the mm-hmm. first place. He's bad at his job. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't really care like how well the final product comes out. Like That's a different conversation. Like There are moments in this movie that are great, and that's kind of what's frustrating about him, is he does reach yeah. these moments that are like transcendent in a like genuine way mm-hmm. but just on a like very brass tax like what a director is supposed to do and like someone whose entire job is just to make decisions and have a clear vision and like direct all of these different departments to get the best work out of them and like a clear yeah forward momentum like creative project i think he's a bad director yeah that is my basic terrence malick take and he's gotten worse as he's <laughs> continued to work and brandon that was my I was going to make that point at the very end ah, of the po- no, I'm but, throwing that on the ground now. <laughs> but I I agree and it's and it's frustrating and some of the movies besides this one we're going to talk about I like more. I like him when he's seems like he's got a script and he's a little more grounded. Well, that leaves you like one movie to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Two. But but yeah, just reading some of the accounts of like the actors yeah. that have had to work with him yeah. that say I'll never work with him again cuz he doesn't <laughs> He, he like will have me give this great monologue that I act and then in post just totally cut it. There are characters who've been cut out of movies. I, I'm, I'm thinking Adrian Brody, maybe in, in Thin, yeah. Thin Red Line, completely cut out he, of the film. He thought he was the main guy in the movie. <laughs> Probably brought his sh- parents to the premiere. Right. Yeah, brought his parents to the premiere and he's in like <laughs> oh, 10 minutes. Shit. Yeah, he's in like 10 minutes in the movie. Yeah. Jesus. Like, that and then is, his mom's like, I'm still not proud of you. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you know, Malik in post was sitting there was like, actually, this other character is the more interesting. And he worked on it for three years, like edited this right. guy out. And like Christopher Plummer, who we're going to talk about <laughs> yeah. in A New World, yeah. same thing. I'm never working with him again. I gave this great heartfelt monologue. And he he <laughs> like didn't show movie. my acting. He just used my words as in like the background. And I could see as like an actor and, you know, I think in Days of Heaven, we'll talk about from the technical side of right. having people stand around all day to get 20 minutes of great lighting. And again, the final product is pretty beautiful and it, it 
yeah. is that his method? Like, is he lazy or is that just? His I, I don't know. What I do think, think that's what we're really yeah. getting at here. So, so I want to bring one other example, which is from a movie that we did. James and I thought we were supposed to watch, and it was not on the list of movies we had watched. Which is yeah, Terrence Malick uh, viewing. So. <laughs> Uh, Night of Cups was released, I think, in 2017, maybe. I want to say it was like one of the first ones after A Tree of Life. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was, and it it is basically like the Sean Penn stuff from Tree of Life, but that's the entire movie, and it's Christian Bale, and he's this like really hedonistic screenwriter. Um, but I was reading a little bit about the production of that film, and like there were scripts written, but Christian Bale like never got pages from a script. And he said that he was like often confused about what the film was supposed to be. And I think if you are trying to make a film about like life and the universe and existence, like I can understand why he would have this approach of like I'm going to capture all of this stuff and I have like inklings of what I think needs to go in but I want to like really get all everything that I might need mm-hmm. and then have the material to like construct something and I can I can see that as like an artistic mode but I can also see how that would be extremely frustrating for an art style where you have to like pay multiple people to be on set at all times and like they need to do their jobs and they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing like you can't it's it's hard to just be a god that's guessing at what he wants to say and he is like an auteur in the truest sense like he's in the sense that like he's not a director is what i mean it's like uh, to me, a director, like Brandon was saying, is make hard and quick decisions about what we need to do to get this thing done and like the budget and the time. So I'm not wasting everyone's research. Like, and all the great directors, I think, do do that. To me, he's more of this, again, he got a degree in philosophy. Right. And I get the sense reading about his life that like film was sort of, like he he wasn't like a film nerd. He kind of like wanted to teach philosophy and then got into film because he's like, well, why not? That's a like there's some quote he gave about like, yeah, it's just a job like any other job. Like he's using film to really talk about his like philosophy. The art of like being a director is not his deal. Yeah. And and that makes sense. It's it's like the way that he directs is like someone who's just kind of like ruminating about what he wants to do. It's not like I have a clear plan of what I want to accomplish that yeah. could potentially be like, you know, altered as we go along. It's like, ah, what if we explore the wi- the wheat here and the sun <laughs> and the hands and the and what you know, oh, what is life? And you you know, it's like I get what he's doing but it's like i can see how it'd be extremely frustrating to work with like he's like i'm not gonna give you any real structure and i don't 100 percent understand what my vision is now but once all this shit's done it's like when you pull out like i want to do arts and crafts right yeah you go to your craft drawing like there's a bunch of shit what can i make of all this stuff i have ribbon here i have construction paper it's like he's building all of the material that he wants to like create a collage out of but the thing is that once he's done he's never done. Like he doesn't actually finish projects. Like the people he owes a project to are eventually like, you have to stop fucking with this. We need to put it out and make (laughs) some of our money back. He never knows when to stop. 
He never knows what he's trying to say or what he's trying to do. He basically has good taste in cinematography. And that's not yeah. a full director. Like, I don't know that like a beautiful shot of nature in one of his films is any is worth any more to me than like a nature documentary would be. Like there are ways to go out at magic hour and shoot a wheat field that like, if that's what you're doing, like you can do that in like 15 minutes and then put it in a, like a Disney nature doc with I like beautiful cameras and that's it. Did think a lot about the discovery channel. Exactly. Watching like <laughs> it's a lot of pretty much all of these. Yeah. Where I'm like, this feels like those like, you know, BBC earth or. Yeah. I will say though, to defend tree of life a little bit, I do think like the evolution scene, I like it. I think it's like bold and pretty bad. It reminds me of like 2001, a space, like we're going to go there. We're just going to, the whole evolution of the universe on film. And I also thought that, and this is another thing that will come up is like the actors are good. Like he has good actors to work with. And there are scenes of the family stuff that did sort of resonate with me and like brought back my own memories of like, my mother or playing with children with my cousins in Georgia, like, and it is the cinematography. It captures, it is like evocative and poetic and the stuff about memory. It resonated with me. I was like feeling the emotions more in this one than in some of the other ones. But uh, again, the problem was the unfocused nature and I did not care for the Sean Penn stuff at all. So that's why it's, Sort of a mixed bag for me, but... There is a stretch that I think this movie is actually, like, very good. Which is, like, Brad Pitt plays basically, like, the spokesperson for toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And is, like, teaching his sons to be little shits. And he and his wife have a tiff, and he leaves for a while. And the kids have learned all the wrong lessons about how to be a man and just run over their mother Mm -hmm. once that power vacuum has left the house. And, like, the abuser's gone... Now we're a bunch of little abusers that are going to like mm-hmm. pattern that behavior. Yeah. And it's like, that's an interesting movie, which is like maybe runtime wise, like 25% of what's on screen here. And the rest is this like jumbled mess that's retelling life on earth from inception to the afterlife. But the limited view of life on earth is not the entire planet or cosmos right. or like life at large. It's all Americana. And I feel like that's my problem with Malik at large is like every movie he makes is about the myth of America and like how America tells its story and like what this country is and its own self mythology. And I just don't find that subject very interesting, especially not over and over and over again. Yeah. And this one's like the 50s and 60s suburbia end right. of that subject. Yeah. I think that was what frustrated me about this film and about Knight of Cups, especially like you have this huge scope, like these really beautiful images of like the world being created. And then you zoom in on this very specific, like, like this white family in Texas in the 50s. And it's like, I'm fine with both of those ideas. But like, knowing that he is a philosopher like the fact that that is kind of the stuff of life that he's the most interested in like i understand it because that's probably his experience but it just felt like so limited and like 
And especially the extension into the Sean Penn stuff of this adult man who's kind of spiritually bereft and he's like this successful architect who's wandering around these like steel buildings. It's it's like I like I don't give a fuck about this guy at all. And he's not representative of humanity. So if you're going to make a film that is supposed to be the encapsulation of human life, like it's in my opinion, it should be like a broader film or just make it about like your or this experience that you relate to growing up and don't try to make this about like this is the story of human history. I I think that gets to a problem of all philosophy and that it's mostly by affluent white men. And this feels like another example of that. It like philosophy has to be like focused on your own experience because that's all you have. So all the philosophy is, you know, pretty one-sided and a lot of Terrence Malick movies are sort of the same idea. It's like he's ruminating on the things that interest him and his experience, but it's very limited in scope. The other two movies that are coming to mind in that frame, especially like modern filmmaking, is like A Ghost Story and Richard Linklater's Boyhood, which Mm -hmm. are like these like grand scope, like the circular nature of life, like death and rebirth of the entire galaxy or whatever. And like, for what, for this like Texas white boy childhood that we've already seen on screen, like a million times. Like it's just not that interesting ultimately, even though the structure is maybe a little looser and like more pondering than most movies of that ilk. But there are beautiful images. Oh yeah. No, I'm not going to deny that. Like that's again, like, each one of these films that was the conversation in my head was like all the stuff we just talked about, but God damn, that's pretty to look at. Like, so the cinematography is there. I don't know if the storytelling is there, but I feel like tree of life is the ultimate representation of the mixed bag. That is Terrence Malick. Yeah. I think there were some genuinely surprising i mean beyond the beautiful nature shots the beautiful shots of children running around there are some really genuinely surprising images like there's this one image of his i think his mother standing behind a mirror with her hands in front of the mirror and they're reflecting mm-hmm. off of it so she kind of looks like this like alien creature and it's they're all of these like little snapshots of time but it's like moments where i see like he has a or his cinematographer in collaboration with him. In yeah, one. it is. Yeah. And I think this is the second film where he used Lubeski. And, and yeah. I did want to bring him up because I feel like he's kind of what I like about yeah. these movies. Like from Thin Red Line onward, I think this is the only cinematographer that he's used that I'm aware of. And that's what I like. About it. I like the look of it and the feel of it. Um, so he deserves a lot of accolades for that and he's searching for digital beauty in particular it's like these handheld digital cameras Mm -hmm. and like using them in ways that like the bulkier like panasonic cameras that he had to use in like days of heaven and stuff he couldn't do these things with so like this is very up close shots of like sunflowers Mm -hmm. and then up close shots of like brad pitt's bulbous face right (laughs) like make him like like an alien it's like way way wide angle and then kind of like and james i think you mentioned this too like kind of swooping like swooning like movements yeah it it captures something beautiful i i dig it i dig the style but it has been ripped off to uh, the point of like you can make the argument that he's kind of ripping himself off it 
this point. And after James and I finished the Tree of Life, we like went on a walk and it was, I think it was like eight o'clock or something. It was night. And, and then it started raining. And I was like, even though I felt so conflicted about the film, I it was like, it did make me feel like the world is magical. It was like, you know, there was rain falling in our wine glasses and we were running back home. And I was like, God damn it. That is the point of the movie, though. Yeah. Right? It's like Brad right. Pitt's like sad that he didn't recognize the beauty of the yeah. life he had and instead yeah. he was like this tough man who like pushed his kids too yeah. hard and his his mom is like you gotta love every leaf yeah and the son is repeating the cycle yeah yeah it's easy to make fun of that because earnestness and like poetry of like you know enjoying or appreciating the daily details is like you know it's it's easy to be cynical and like mock that because it is so open-hearted and vulnerable but like not the worst impulse, you know, yeah. creatively. Like, it, it's good to, like, remind people that, like, life is wondrous. Yeah. My journey with this man, like, again, throwing, like, all cards out on the table in this, like, first film. Because this really is, like, the kind of the crescendo of everything he's been working on his yeah. whole career. And I would argue everything after this is technically, quote, unquote, late style for him. Where he, like, really leans into his worst, most indulgent impulses. Mm-hmm. But, like, when I left the theater for Tree of Life over a decade ago, I was mad. And at this point, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Like, there <laughs> are a bunch of pieces, yeah. parts of this that are like very beautiful and transcendent, like actually feel like great cinema. And it's just like you have the vast wealth of resources to make the best movies ever made. And to some people, I mean, it's a matter of taste that really uh, this is like the height of the art form. But for me, it's like a waste of resources. It's like the best material out there assembled in like the least interesting. Yeah progression i don't know i'm still debating that in my head because it's still such a young art form and to say that like to direct a movie you have to like have a tight script and stay like boom 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 like there can be areas to explore like maybe there this is a way to approach film like let me have themes in my head and like shoot these actors improvisationally and let me look at the footage and see what works and put it together to make something magical. That could be a way to approach the art form. I don't know. I don't think it necessarily works most of the time. I see it exactly the same way as fucking Andrew Getty making uh, the evil within. Like you never would finish the stuff if you were left to your own devices. Like it's how I feel about it needs to be taken out of your hands. Like a, a lot's been written about like Kanye West, like the way he, produces albums he like won't stop like it's the night before and he's still chopping up and editing songs and then he'll like re-release it with the director's cut i don't that's just like i think how some artists work yeah i just think there are some art forms where that is like more sustainable than others like i think if you're making music it's a little easier to just like hole up in your room and like you know produce and produce and produce but if you're making a film that costs like i mean basically you have to like string all these people along for months and months and months and then like it takes you three years to like i don't think it's an impossible way to approach the art but it can be like very wasteful and you can totally alienate people from working with you
never been this rich, all right? I mean, we were just all of a sudden living like kings. Just none to do all day but crack jokes, lay around. We didn't have to work. I'm telling you, the rich got to figure it out. All right, so my pick um, was Badlands. And I was motivated to pick a film that was not two and a half hours long. <laughs> it was part of the reason I picked this. But it was also his first film. Um, the cinematographer was Tak Fujimoto, who also worked with like M. Night Shyamalan and uh, Jonathan Demme. And he did, a, he did, I think he did 16 Candles. Or pr- maybe it was Pretty in Pink. <laughs> so this film visually is... I would not be able to distinguish this as a Malick film. And the direction and the writing is also like not as freewheeling as I feel like he gets in later films. So Badlands is about a young couple um, played by Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen. Um, She's 15. He's 24, I believe. Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) And it's based on an actual killing spree that happened um, in the in the fifties with these young this young man and this girl and he he started off I think he killed like a gas station attendant because he, he like wouldn't let him buy a stuffed animal on credit and then th- they got into like an altercation he shot him then he went to um, this girl's house and shot her mother and stepfather and their daughter and then they just went on the run it was like a six uh 30 day spree so martin sheen plays this kind of charismatic but violent like hot-headed guy sissy spacek is this like very sweet teenager she's kind of naive um and they meet and kind of fall in love and he eventually decides that he's gonna uh, she's gonna run away with him he kills her father and they fake like a suicide basically like they light the house on fire they he does this like suicide note gramophone um and leaves it for the police and they run off and the violence is just kind of escalating they're like living alone in the woods together and then these three guys come to kill them martin sheen kills all of them they run off to this um farm where he you know it just kind of like goes and goes and goes and then escalates into like a helicopter chase and eventual capture so i think it's a great film it didn't have like a really strong identity to me there are some really beautiful shots but it it felt like kind of a more traditional film than his other films traditional in what sense though because it's like a new hollywood picture yeah so like it's traditional in like the like 70s style of filmmaking i don't know this is still like a new art form to me like uh you know when scorsese and bogdanovich and all these people were coming out he was among that crop of filmmakers yeah so, like it is traditional in that like post Bonnie and Clyde sense, but not in like an old Hollywood. I mean, it's it's definitely got some violence. Right. Yeah. Some like kind of anti-hero stuff going on. Yeah. I guess I just mean like when I'm thinking of Terrence Malick's like trajectory, like this feels like it's like a straightforward narrative. Which is why it's so good. It's his best movie, but (laughs) also like an argument against 
my criticisms of him where it's like, you're right. It's not the most Malick movie. Yeah. You know, like it, it's his most anonymous film. You're not, right. you're not wrong about that. Yeah. And like, that is the argument against all criticisms about him, like finding the film in the editing room and stuff like right. that. It's like when he shoots a film straight and uses all of his tricks and all of his usual subject matter, he makes a movie that like anybody could have made. Right. But I would push back against that. This and Days of Heaven have this pastoral Americana thing going on that right. I think he shoots really well, has an eye for like, again, the time of day, the way the clouds yeah. look, the open terrain, like he captures that very well. I don't know if any filmmaker could do that. I He is good at his craft of like, that is a good looking shot. We need to capture it. What I like about this movie is how tight it is. Mm-hmm. And it's like clearly telling the story it wants to tell. And it has characters that right. say lines <laughs> and have a beginning, yeah. middle, end. And even the narration like feels like it's right. lines from a novel, which is kind of incredible. This wasn't adapted from something besides like the real life events. Right. But like all the other narration tracks in every other movie feel like improvised poetry. Right. Just sort of like vague well, they are statements. Yeah. Apparently he would like write and rewrite the lines to the point of like pretension, you know, and that's what it feels like. And that's kind of the like criticism of him. But yeah, the narration here, yeah, it does feel straight out of a novel. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was, he does, I think there's a voiceover narration in all of the films. Yes. Yeah. yeah to some extent. Yeah. Like some it's yeah. more than others. Tree right. of Life, there's like five narrators. <laughs> they yeah. all have nothing yeah. to say. It, it felt like <laughs> like Sissy Spakes was like reading out of her diary. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think like this narration, it did feel kind of like heartfelt. And like I, I got the sense that it was coming from like a 15 year old who was kind of naive and in love, but also like reflecting on this period of, in her life with a like a little sadness and regret like it like he uses all of these components except for the cinematic like the cinematography that he repeats in other films but it's like the most normalized version of it but also i think like the best written and the tightest like there Which is were, weird. He wrote the script to right, this, too. Right, exactly. He, he, he can write a good yeah. script. That's frustrating, too. Right. Like, there's this moment near the end of the film, and it's kind of, like, becoming clear that they're going to be caught. And C.C. Spacek is talking about how she feels lonely and, like, the difference between loneliness and solitude. And then she's dancing with Martin Sheen, to this song where it's like talking about how how the dream is ended and like like lies between lovers and he says like if i could sing a song about the way i feel right now it would be a hit and that i felt like that line was really evocative and like really getting at his kind of empty desperation and his like like he's this this character has all of this violence and like confusion. He's just kind of like doesn't have a way forward. And he says eventually like he always wanted to be a criminal. Yeah. But I like there's a lot of heart in that moment that I just don't I just don't see a lot of those like tight characterizations and like understandable human impulses in his other films that's like what stuck out to me a lot well specifically like martin sheen's character where 
a lot of times when you have a movie about like a serial killer, like a bad guy, Mm -hmm. like that bad guy is like a total monster. And like while he is like, it's like he focuses on like the human aspect of him and like his humanity, which humanity, nature, hello. That's like Terrence (laughs) Malick's thing, right? But that almost makes it a little more like unnerving because that's the reality of it. Like they're serial killers and people who are like total batshit out there and they're not monsters. They're human beings just like each one of us. Or handsome and charming, you know? Like, exactly. Yeah. And it kind of makes it a little like, oh, like he this, he doing, could, that could be anybody. He's doing James Dean. Yeah. And like, yeah. it's yeah. basically like if James Dean was a serial killer, he would be just yeah. as <laughs> charming dug in the trash. and hot. Like Martin yeah. Sheen is hot in this movie. Sissy Spacek is hot. Well, like, that's, that's where this movie fits in his general discussion of like American myth is like mm-hmm. Martin Sheen is like an American character in this yeah. movie. It's like he's a rebel, but he's charming. He like commits a lot of acts of violence, but you're like still kind of like, you know, wowed by him. He and drives like, like nice, you know, those fifties yeah. cars. Cadillac. Yeah. The Cadillac. And I love at the end when he's getting arrested and like still charming everyone arresting him. And right. like, he's kind of wondering if he's going to get like a lighter sentence because he's kind of a character. You know, <laughs> right. Like, he thinks that like he won't be executed because he's like you know a one of a kind James Dean like knockoff yeah. and like that stuff is very specific to everything Malik's made since, but it's like more directly critical of the Americana, yeah, and like the like uglier side of it, yeah. And there's like a lot of ironic humor in that. Um, the the dance sequence, I don't know. I I was thinking of, like Moonrise Kingdom and like how romantic it is. That same scene where they're like they run away from home and they're like yeah. dancing to the records but like here it's just kind of like ugly and weird and sad yeah and, like i feel two ways about it it's like this is him at his tightest and like making a movie the way you're supposed to and like it is the most satisfying to me mm-hmm. but i think if he only made movies this way we would not be discussing yeah. him as anyone interesting all these years later like it's more of the same milieu as like wanda which we just watched or um like i said earlier bonnie and clyde like it's very of this era and not of this director right until you start lumping in all the stuff he's done since i really thought of wanda when i watched this because it's like we're just picked up for the ride and we're just like watching like it's like there's no like let me bring you back and give you some backstory on this it's like no we're just we're here we're moving along and it is what it is why i love the sissy spacek character in Uh here because she's just kind of like you said along for the ride yeah she doesn't really do anything but that's kind of wrong to just sit back and watch your boyfriend she gets sensed to like four months time at the end it's like Really? Like, okay, apparently that is the, not what happened in the real life. <laughs> well, in the real life case, she was sitting for like, like 17 years. 17 years. Yeah. But that she makes more get, sense. Yeah. She did get out eventually, but just that their relationship too, it's like that stupid teenage love where like, yeah. I guess I get why y'all love each other, but you're really just watching your boyfriend be a dick. But you're he's not giving her attention. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like you're 15, you're in Texas, you're just yeah. like doing your little gymnastics things on the and then this like hot James Dean in the guy. Of the yeah, it totally yeah. makes sense. That right. is one of the details that actually is very Malik is like after he cast Sissy Spacek, he found out that she did uh twirling batons yeah. like in high school. Like he was know, like, Yeah, we're curriculum. gonna add that like, in the movie. Oh yeah, we're gonna bring that into right. your character. Pretty great. Yeah. The scene where they fake their suicide in her father's house and burn it to the ground, like that was, I think, the most beautiful image in any of these movies, yeah. I think, is like that sequence of the house burning. Mm-hmm. With um, their fake suicide yeah. note playing. Yeah. The fire is shot so beautifully in this. Like, he does it, fire well. Yeah. I, it, I, and it comes up in the next film as well. Yeah. I was going to say, like, 
I, but yeah, I do get your your point. Yeah, everything Malik has made a name for himself for is present in this movie. It just like is a clearly designed and executed project. <laughs> it's kind of hard to like. It's a little more, co- it's more cohesive yeah, than totally. anything else. Yeah. yeah, and I think I am. <laughs> I I think another similarity with Wanda is like like this and the next movie we're going to talk about it is about these people that are trying like can't make it work in the system traditionally like this yeah. so they have to turn to something like either crime or like deceit and those stories are so much more interesting to me than like the tree of life and knight of cups of like looking at like American rot from the perspective of someone who is extremely successful and then feels like kind of empty inside. Mm. Like I, I just, I'm much more interested in what he was looking at earlier on in his career. I agree. And even this one, like early on in the film, I, I was like really hooked. I'm like, okay, this is a great film. Yeah. And then it kind of narratively unravels. Like once they kill the father and go on the run, like the movie kind of loses narrative cohe- well, not cohesion but I like trajectory it, like. i think it becomes just sort of a hangout movie for right. mm-hmm. an hour which i don't know which i think is fine it's fine but it is like a hint of like the tendencies he would right. like indulge at length later and i i think it kind of works for the movie because they are like essentially just aimless like once they kill the father they're just running on borrowed time, basically, yeah. like waiting until one little it catches adventure up with to them. the next. Right. Whereas like using that in every film that you make just becomes like an unmanageable kind of bloated um, timeline. Well, and the bloated thing, too, it's, this movie is an hour and a half. Yeah. I think every other movie. Well, Days of Heaven is relatively, but a lot of his other films are two hours 15 then director yeah it depends cut. on what cut you watch <laughs> yeah really. it's like three hours he doesn't know how long his movies are yeah uh i think we should jump into days of heaven now because yeah. like this one and badlands are connected yeah and that totally. like badlands is a fully executed project and days mm-hmm. of heaven from 1978 i think is where he learned his worst tendencies like <laughs> i think this movie got away from him as he was making it yep and then he pulled it together somehow in the editing room against all logic based on like the devices he used to make Badlands feel straightforward. Yeah. He's like, okay, I'll just do that again and make Days of Heaven work. Let me post. just add in some narration, narration. from yeah. Mance. Yeah. And I think it like once it won some awards for like best cinematography and like made some like critical t- best of the year list, like kind of rewarded him for his like worst behavior. <laughs> and he's like, never come back from Ooh, it. I can do this forever. Right. <laughs> so days of heaven stars, Richard Gere as this, like almost like a flash dance style, like steel mill worker. <laughs> he's like shoveling coal in his industrial machines. And like, he's a bit of a hothead, like in his breathless remake and kills his mm-hmm. boss on site and then goes on the run with his, girlfriend who he pretends is his sister to quote-unquote avoid <laughs> gossip like this that's i'm sorry that's this an insane cornerstone of, like this is the cornerstone of the conflict of this yeah. film and it is so baffling to me because if you're lying about this woman being your lover and you're still basically treating her like you're in love with her that causes so many more yeah, yeah. Like, they weren't even like sneaky about it right. like it was no. kind of out in the open right. 
I kind of in the middle of the wheat field. <laughs> We're nowhere to hide. Maybe it was from this. <laughs> but then time it becomes period. like, hey, so it kind of seems like you're fucking your sister. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so okay, this is a hundred years later. We're watching this. <laughs> right. It's okay to cohabitate with someone that you're fucking right now. Yeah. And avoid gossip. You don't have to pretend they're your sister. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Like, uh, at the time, since they weren't married, I guess it wasn't cool for them to have a sexual relationship. But like watching a movie in the 2020s where like you're pretending your girlfriend is your sister right. so people don't suspect things is very weird. Yeah, I just I just don't I'm not 100% convinced that the people on the wheat field would be like, I don't believe that right. you're like she's your wife. Where's your marriage license? <laughs> They're you all know? transient workers, I'm right. sure. Some of them aren't married either. Like it costs money to get married and right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So they are farmers who like pick up seasonal work because they're on the run from this like murder that he commits yeah. in a, a fleeting moment of passion because he's a hothead. Um, and when they're working on the field, they overhear that the farmer who owns the property is ill. Even though there's a younger man, he's not supposed to live for another full year. And he's like, hey, that guy's got the hots for you. Why don't you marry him? I'll continue to pretend I'm your brother and then you'll inherit this farm and we'll be made. Like once he dies, yeah. we could just like live here as a as a married couple and that's a great setup. Right. Yeah. Me and James tried it before. You know? <laughs> it, didn't work. it didn't work out. <laughs> didn't work. You gotta work the long game, you know? It could still <laughs> right. happen. No uh, farm. <laughs> no farm. Uh it turns out the guy kind of rebounds and doesn't die. <laughs> and then he becomes increasingly <laughs> suspicious that his wife has this like passionate side relationship with her brother that like looks more and more romantic the more he stares at it it also gets complicated because she falls in love with the farmer for real because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he's not a hothead uh right. passionate guy he's with like crazy harebrained schemes kind of a nice guy sweet. yeah he's yeah. Bring, sweet brings her on little vacations yeah and he takes care of her little sister played mm-hmm. by linda mance who narrates the film oh that uh, narration how do you feel about that i did not <laughs> hated her accent people I love it She's got this like New York accent. Oh, right. it's, it, I just cringed every time I heard. <laughs> There's a little devil and a little angel inside us. Yes. I thought it was. I kind of. I don't know. I kind of uh, liked it. It's got character. <laughs> I think what bothers me about it is because it's not written and she's just um, improvising and like she punctuates every statement with something. It's like, yeah. oh, we were doing this or something, and then we were living or something, and then something happened and something. Like you can tell she's kind of reaching for something. Like she's like something. Oh, yeah. something. Like she's like really trying to bring this project to an end because Malik spent two years <laughs> little girl. in the editing room <laughs> unable to figure out how to construct a film out of what he out of what he captured on camera. And earlier we were like crediting cinematographers for like capturing the best images in his movies maybe even more so than him he just like has a good taste in who he hires um multiple camera operators had to quit because this movie would not end and like they had other (laughs) projects they had to move on to and he insisted on shooting at quote-unquote the magic hour which is really 20 (laughs) minutes out of the day even though they're shooting in canada maybe like maybe 40 minutes of like production time on every single day where he could like film the actors with their most beautiful lighting the production went on and on and on after it was over. He would not come out of the editing room with like a finished vision and like really needed that Linda Mance narration track to like add a narrative to what he shot. And he got rewarded for it. Like this movie won an Oscar for best cinematography. It does look good. And it looks beautiful. That that wheat. Okay. You can call this the most beautiful film ever shot. I'll believe you because it is like 
competently shot well, but I will never call a movie that's all browns the most beautiful. <laughs> like it, I, I need like high artifice, like uh, the red shoes kind of like fantasy for me to like follow along yeah. that well, thought. What but, about but the it house? Well shot. The like multicolored house in the mm, middle of all the brown. But, but I think it's I capturing nature. It's not artifice. Like right. he's never really done artifice. This is where taste comes in. Like yeah. I'm not interested in what Terrence Malick is interested in. So like I'm not going to ever fall in love with this guy because we have like a impasse and has nothing to do with like competency i have other issues with him but like i I don't care about america the way he cares about america i don't care about flowing wheat fields in the golden sunlight the way Mm -hmm. he does really okay Uh. last night i made okay this is like a really like um abstract tangent here but like last night i made um a very lazy dinner where i heated up fish fillets and tater tots I had in my freezer. And as I was cooking dinner, I realized I didn't have any frozen broccoli to go with it. So there's no vegetables to break up what was on the plate. It was just a bunch of fried browns. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, depressing. It looked like days of <laughs> It was your days of heaven. Yeah, it was. I was like, I'll never find this beautiful because it is like kind of mundane know, to me. But if you like, yeah, the, that's part of the beauty. It's like if, when I went to Colorado last year, me and my dad drove through parts of West Texas, which are it's exactly what you're describing. It's just like flat nothingness, like as far as the eye can see, the clouds, and it's beautiful. Like it, it is America. It's large parts of America. Yeah. We had this argument when we talked about Rio Bravo, and I might have yeah. cut it out of the podcast because we argued for a long time. Yeah, but like I don't find that beautiful. <laughs> it is. It is definitely in the podcast. I okay. I oh, it is. To it. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're coming back to because <laughs> I I love that sprawlingness about America. I think mm-hmm. that's what makes this country special. It's a breath of fresh air. It feels light. That's a question of taste. Like yes. people find right. the western setting beautiful in a way that I don't find. Oh, I love the desert. Dude, the desert's right. beautiful. Yeah, there's there's no objective point of view of like the, of the right. The <laughs> right. <laughs> We're talking about aesthetic. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I as a Midwesterner, I can't help but love wheat, you know. I'm I'm sorry. Okay, besides that though, the narrative structure of this and like how even the plot synopsis I gave, like I don't think the plot really matters here. I had a hard time remembering details yeah. even like it, it is only the beauty and it is only trying to construct the images he caught, like the nature footage he captured on camera um, with this like newly, I mean, even like the, the cameras they were shooting on tracks and on shoulder mounts were lighter than like a lot mm-hmm. of films made before it. So like he's really pushing what the art form could do at the time, not in a way that I find particularly exciting, but like it is new and innovative, but like for what purpose? And I don't think right. the movie like means much well, beyond that visual beauty. Yeah. My issue with it is the editing of it, where it's obvious, where it's just like, oh, yeah, I shot that scene. We'll put that that scene with the horse, put it there. After that, oh, yeah, we got that. We'll put that next. And it feels like you're watching a haphazardly put together piece of art. And the individual shots are gorgeous. But like you said, the details, the narrative does not flow like a movie really should for me yeah and i i feel like there are great metaphorical parallels between the growth of the wheat and like the era of like this family is 
pretty poor. They've been like hopping from place to place. And they finally find like their golden goose egg, basically, in this rich farmer. And even though they're like living on this lie, they're all able to like live a wealthy lifestyle. And it's this brief period. It's like the golden hour of their life, basically. Like, we're taken care of in a way we never have been. And we're going to ride this out as long as we can. And then it's like, inevitably, that all comes kind of crumbling down. And the destruction of the wheat is like, really disturbing to me. And like this incursion of locusts that have kind of been present throughout the film. Like, I thought that that was really effective and i was emotionally impacted by it but i just could not bring myself to really care about the human story and i think part of that maybe is because he didn't have this like thorough vision in mind like he he had to have this like supplementary narration to like thread that story together like i feel like if you don't shoot the story strong from the beginning it's you're not really going to feel it and I, I will say, like, Brandon liked that the fire scene of the house mm-hmm. and that. The locust stuff, to me, I think that's some of the most beautiful images he's ever shot. The nighttime, the locust, and yeah. the fire. That's is the like, closest they get to, like, true artifice in here, too, is, like, they dropped, I think it was, like, painted peanuts yes. out of airplanes. Yeah. And then um, had the actors move backwards and then backed the film up through the projector to make it seem like locusts were rising cool. to the sky. Yeah. And it looks weird and dreamlike in almost like a Lynchian way. Mm-hmm. Um, that like, oh, it's like, okay, this is like the beauty of film to me. Like, this is like yeah. n- normally what I'm looking for. And like, I do think he pulled this movie together. I think it is one of his better films. Yep. It's only a second film. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I feel like he learned all the wrong lessons about why this worked. Yeah. But it also gave him a signature method of making movies, not movies I particularly appreciate, but other people do. And like, it gave him a, a Terrence Malick style that he, yeah. he recreated over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and shot longer stuff. Like you could tell a tree of life. He has longer shots of those nature scenes that he can work in however he wants. Mm-hmm. In days of heaven, he's like, give me these very quick dissolves and like very quick sequences of, these uh, wheat fields that like you almost want him to slow down and make it a two yeah. and a half hour movie because he's not really ruminating any of those particular images. He has a really cool part where like the wheat grows from the seedling oh, and we yeah, like see yeah, it yeah. and I'm like, there it is. There's his discovery right. channelness <laughs> that is coming <laughs> through. That's right. like the first inkling of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was thinking you're that. exactly right. Like I would rather watch planet earth on Blu-ray than watch another Ter- Terrence Malick movie. Right. Like I-, I think it's the same payoff just without all the empty philosophy mixed in. Yeah. I, I do agree with you that this is the one where I wish it was longer. This should be like two hours to really let it. It feels rushed. Yeah. But it feels rushed, I guess, in a way that I kind of appreciate it. Like, um, I kind of want to jump into the next movie, but like uh, the next one had three different cuts and one of them <laughs> was very short and that was the theatrical cut. And it was like, rushing through all this early exposition i was like fuck yes let's get this out of the way and then sink into like the payoff later on wait is that the one we watched tana for a new world we watched the um because it's still two hours and 15 minutes it's so long okay so the new world i don't want to preempt your like discussion of it but like the movie had this longer cut that screened for critics yes and then he took out 15 minutes of it 
uh, for its theatrical run, and then he added back 30 minutes of it <laughs> for its extended run because he cannot stop tinkering in the editing room. Like he's he's just like completely Some obsessed. Interesting math with like figuring the yeah. movie out in post, mm-hmm. and like he doesn't have like a clear vision of what he wants to present to the movie going public. Yeah, and I don't know if the new world had a clear vision. Ugh. I have questions about that too. Yeah, so the new world. We're in 2005. We're done with the Browns. <laughs> and we are we are in um I guess the green greener the I think we're in the green a little bit of sure. sea. Well, so I was nervous about this a little bit because it is a telling of like the Pocahontas story, and American directors don't do a really good job of like films that have any sort of Native American aspect to it. So I was kind of like, holy shit, this could be like horrible. Yeah. But I kind of, like, went into it, like, not, like, kind of, let me wipe everything I know about Pocahontas and, you know, early settlers from my brain and just go in kind of raw to this and, like, looking at it for what it is. And I don't know, like, there was some some points of it where I connected more with, like, the nature and humanity aspect of it than the actual plot like i really didn't care about the plot that much but it's the pocahontas story right yeah it's Mm -hmm. john smith played by colin farrell these settlers from england come to the new world or what they perceive as the new world and there's this clash with the you know the natives but what what i also thought was cool is how the um what was the language that was used it was a Navajo like language and there were actual like native American indigenous like actors playing these roles. So I thought that was tasteful. And like John Smith comes to the new world with his gaggle of people from England and they're dumb and they are like, all right, let's go look for some gold and not focus on how we're going to actually like survive in this new world. (laughs) where the natives who are already there are kind of like what is happening and i don't know i don't want to get into it too much because like there's a lot of drudgery where like john smith gets captured and he almost gets killed and then there the pocahontas is like no don't do this and then he enjoys his time with the natives because he starts to like appreciate how they live their lives and um sort of like that connection that they have with nature and how they rely on nature to kind of make it and and what they have set up is wonderful compared to what the settlers have set up because they're kind of dumb and then he goes back and pocahontas um well when he goes back he basically is like you know the chief wants all of us to be out of here by spring which is not going to happen and whenever the chief finds out like oh they're not gonna leave and they're gonna stay here like this is bad then pocahontas is exiled and there's like this kind of battle sequence um and then she's kind of captured by the settlers but she starts to acclimate to like that western to the western world where she's baptized and yeah it's like she's experiencing this new world from her perspective but that's the part of the film that i liked like i didn't really care about the weird back and forth shit with like the settlers whatever but it was the pocahontas character like how there was a big focus on her towards the end like once i Mm -hmm. got to like that point where like 
Colin Farrell went away because he like was like, I'm going to go to the West Indies because my career is better than like this romance we have that I didn't really pick up on the romance of it. But whenever she kind of is, we're focused more on her and herself. Like I kind of thought that was. Yeah. It kind of almost better. turns into like romantic melodrama where like she has white hot passion with this John Smith guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she has a more stable romance with right. uh, Christian Bale's character. Right. And it's like, what do I do? Do I go with this guy who like, but it happens so with me? quickly where it's kind of like, she still has that interest in John Smith after yeah. she's married and like has her kid and everything. And then she goes to England. I love the part whenever she like goes to England and just like, cause you're so focused on like the background and the first half of the movie. Uh-huh. And then everything sticks out so much more like yeah. when, whenever we were in england i was focused on what do the trees look like right and the buildings and trying to like really like i felt like i was getting her perspective of like what did all this shit like really feel like when she got here yeah i completely agree with that yeah like because there was so much focus on the natural world in the first like hour and a half of the yeah. film it's like London feels so much more alien. Yeah. And like the trees are manicured in this really unsettling, like a cookie cutter. Yeah, exactly. I I thought that that was very effective. Yeah. That was the, like the big payoff for me was for me to be like, holy shit. Whoa. I wouldn't have like picked up on any of that if I didn't have to go through that like hour and a half of the new world. I don't This movie kind of worked for me. Uh I like like this movie. Um, Okay. What I think I liked about it is thinking of it as the first in a trilogy of this, then Tree of Life, and Knight of Cups. Like in the story of America. Well, it's like the beginning, Tree of Life. Getting at this idea that, like, not just Americans, but like people are lost. They're searching for some meaning because this modern world does not give it to us. We know something's wrong. We know we've lost touch with nature and the divine feminine or, you know, mm-hmm. but I do think this movie explores it from the very origins of like going from the native Americans who were like in touch with the land and with nature. And then we came in, we committed a genocide and now we've taken over. And then tree of life is like this, what we think of as the great time of Americana, the 1950s, but in that movie, you have Sean Penn, who's like a modern guy, kind of wishing that he had his childhood, like when America was great, you know. And then Night of Cups is like full-blown dystopia, nihilism, post-capitalist. Yeah, like concrete like, jungle. Concrete jungle, LA. It's all- Which you get a little bit with the Sean Penn stuff in, that, in uh, Tree of Life too, where he's like staring at the, the steel buildings yeah, right. in Texas. And I, like- Thinking about those three films as like a triptych was like, man, that actually is, I like that. It made me like Night Night of Cups a little bit more. It made me yeah. appreciate Tree of Life. And it made me kind of appreciate what he was getting at here with like humans have lost all touch with nature. And, you know, when Pocahontas is going to London and seeing these buildings and like the trees that have been cut, yeah. like there's that... Um, yeah. guy that's going, he's like, what is this? Like, why did they manipulate nature to have these pretty right. perfect little treat? Like that theme across all three of those films is very interesting to me. And I think very true. And like, if that's what his philosophy is, like I can kind of get on board with it. So yeah, I, I kind of like that in this movie. 
my question about that though is like, did he know that he was saying anything when he made this that would connect later to those other films? Like, as I'm watching this movie through segments, I'm like, okay, this is like almost like an alien invasion. Like, yes. yeah. these British guys yeah. are like coming in. They're like, are you from the sky? Like, what are you? Yeah. And then after that, then it turns into this melodrama between these two potential bows that she's kind of like weighing yeah. in her mind. Kind of though. Like, I, it was like, a, it was so light and it happened so fast. Did you find it happened fast? Like right. the weird romance that... I wouldn't even call it romance because I didn't buy into well, it. Well, I don't think the movie knows what it is. That's basically yeah. what I'm saying. Like, I'm okay. going through each segment of the film. Like, it almost feels like he's trying to figure out what he's doing with <laughs> yeah. the material. And I, I don't think it is until he made, like, three other films. that he's like, oh, that's what I was getting at. That's right. right. But isn't that all? <laughs> but thinking of him as, like, a philosopher first, like, yeah. that's what a lot of, philo- like, they work to their final thesis. I also have very little time for philosophy. I know you do. <laughs> But I, I would I would disagree in that it's very clear he views and this is a little like white savior or the idea of like the yeah. noble savage. It's like Indians represent in touch with nature. White men come, they destroy that, and at the end of the film, Pocahontas goes to London. She's looking around and kind of confused. Yeah. As, with what a this, great outfit. What this new world is going to look like. And then the end, when she passes away, is this transcendent return back to nature, which I think feeds directly into Tree of Life of that were cycles of birth and death and the universe. And I think there is something there. Like, I don't think it's as like haphazardly thought out, put together as we're making it. This is same. me being a shit, but like, uh, is that any different than like having to watch 30 Marvel movies to figure out what's going on in, in Avengers Endgame? But like, no, I think it's clear <laughs> in this first one. It I don't think it is. It into the second and it makes me like Knight of Cups more because that feels like the yeah, logical I guess like point. I'm missing because I haven't seen Knight of Cups. So like, I've don't, not oh, seen don't. the holistic it's so bad. thing. Awful. It's empty. It's void. But it's yeah, horrible. It's, I just like, I felt like, like I said, like I tried to like pull all like the historical shit out of it, but it was kind of like, oh my God, they made this look so clean. Mm-hmm. And like so charming in a weird way, but I'm like, oh my god, everyone like got like fucking murdered, right. and she probably wasn't like smiling and really happy about going. She to didn't really England. have a romance like, with John Smith. That's like completely historically well, right. accurate. Yeah. It's taking the myth. Like we and don't she was really like ten know years old. Poca- too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's the myth of Pocahontas. Right. You're you're totally right. Yeah. So yeah, it was just kind of strange. Like I think that's why it felt weird going into it because it's like, ooh, I don't know how to feel about this, and but should I even care about feeling about that? Should I just pay attention to like what it is for what it is? Yeah. The whole movie. T- I only saw it as like an indictment and i don't know if he meant it this way exactly i only saw it as an indictment of our like colonization of north america it was like every step of the movie i was like i want them to turn back so badly like there is that speech in the middle where they've kind of like the tides have kind of turned and christopher Plummer's character is like we've found this new world and god has given it to us to like tame and there's wealth enough for everybody like everybody keeps talking about all of the resources that are here and then like mentioning how oh all of the sturgeon are gone now like i you can just see them destroying this place and then it's like like when she goes back when she goes to london it like this is like a horror movie to me like she sees what north america is going to become 
And I think the thing that like the ending kind of didn't work for me because I was so like unsettled by everything. And then she just kind of like passes. And the last thing she says is like, you know, we're all going to die. And I'm just happy that my son can live on, which is apparently what her husband said. Like, those were her last words, according to her husband, which and again, like everything we know about Pocahontas is from the perspective of like English people that are telling the story. And she was used as like, a pawn to continue and like validate colonization but it's like the kind of like happy wistful ending of her of like the last few reads you know i was just like i know what's gonna happen like we're gonna destroy all of this we're gonna like completely kill these civilizations and Uh, it's yes and what really stuck out now that you're saying that is whenever there's the beggar on the street mm-hmm. and she like goes up to him and like kind of like sort of caresses his face. I'm like, that would never happen with their tribe. Like there would never be right. someone who was like impoverished and like ignored by everybody. And I think like that to me was like where it kind of hit where I'm like, oh, like that's all going right. to go away and when it, we do this. And even like because there are... Th- there is like the noble savage characterization of Native Americans, but even beyond that, they at least have a sustainable relationship with the land that they're living on, which is like completely at odds. Like the English have a 100% adversarial relationship with nature. It's like, we will destroy this and turn it into like concrete. And I, I agree with James in that, like, I don't think you need to see those other two films to appreciate this movie, but this film made me like those films so much more because you can see like the progression of turning our world into like this unnatural material. I I mean, I think it is a good progression. Well, the, and to your point, like I know Brandon was saying that it seems in early Malik, he has like a love of Americana. He loves like the, he's pretty critical in Badlands too. Yeah. In an ironic kind of like way. Like it it wasn't like very overtly critical. It was like, yeah, it was, it was ironic. It was like a humorous, like... Right. I, I just think it's complicated. Like, his view of a... I think he does kind of revere his childhood. Right. You know, he does. But I think he also is critical of the modern world and this, like, world that we've created and, like, we've gotten away from our true nature. Like, the philosophy at the heart of his films is something that I can actually probably get on board with. I just wish I saw a clear POV in this. Like, he yeah. is, like... Even the John Smith stuff, it's like he's distracted from his mission to colonize and like he gets indoctrinated in this like they call it the naturals. Yeah. Uh, and well, there's two ways. Like some of them call call the indigenous people the naturals, and yeah. some of them call them the savages, depending on how racist they are. But like the natural way of living with this landscape, he gets like fully indoctrinated in that, lives in it for a while, and it's like romanticized. Eventually he rejects it. And it feels like on the other end of the movie, maybe this is me being a very simpleton point of view myself, but like I want some kind of like moralizing or statement or like some kind of like clear vision of like what you're saying about this material. And I never caught on to anything. That's how that ending, I I think that's how you were saying you felt about the ending. The ending, if I just looked at that five minutes of footage, like it is, you know, transcendent or it's like feels like a spiritual act 
But yeah, taking it in the totality of the film, I could see how you're kind of scratching your head. What am I transcending? I feel from like I can towards? literally feel him in the editing room scratching his head. Like, what am I saying with this? <laughs> right. And I don't know that he ever like landed yeah. on somewhere until three films later. Is basically what I'm saying. Like, this, and this movie does ha- start to have the very like the all the shots of the hands, like mm-hmm. the touch. Oh, all these shots of hands and the way it's edited and the camera. It's like okay, we're full on Maliki. Yeah. This is and a Malik and Malik. Like very, the score reminded me a lot of the one in um, a Tree of Life. Yeah, like, it's like Wagner. It's like big emotional, cathartic yeah. strings, and yeah, that's what he's going for. It's like I don't know how to parse between the earnest beauty of nature versus the critical view of uh the colonizers living in the land so yeah. I, I don't really feel like a clear trajectory of like one being wiped out by the other it just felt like this and that together right without making yeah. sense that's of a it. good point and that's that a good point. i think that's what i wanted from the ending the ending really is just kind of like her like oh she died on the voyage back and yeah. i mean that is what happened but i i wanted it to commit to the tragedy of what is going to come like right. the the thing that i liked about this film is this kind of it feels like colonization is this unstoppable machine and there are like these early attempts to try and figure out what's going to happen like do we need to kill these people can we just ask them to leave and it's ultimately like it's just inevitable that their land is going to be destroyed. But there was no real reckoning with that at the end. It just kind of like ended. And that's what I wanted. Like I I saw those threads all throughout the film and I just wanted it to like punch me and it, it didn't. She just kind of like died kind of happily. Right. Between her two great loves. Right. And so how earnestly <laughs> am I supposed to take that? Yeah. And like in general, my whole like, I'm not mad anymore. I'm just disappointed. It's like (laughs) all of these movies could be great. Like he has all of the raw material, but he doesn't necessarily know what he wants to do with it. Not, he doesn't have a vision, but he doesn't know what to do. Like he he just feels kind of like, what's this guy's deal? And I ultimately, that's what I overall kind of learned from watching these films is like the look of them and the feel of the camera work and the cinematography could be used to make truly great films and nothing I've seen has transcended to like a full on like masterpiece. Yeah. And that's really like disappointing. It's frustrating. Like, like you said, cause it's there like, and there's glimmers of it in each movie of hope of like, Oh, this is going to be the one, this is going to be the one that breaks through. And like, I didn't see it in any of the films. Yeah. Just kind of a l- little bit of a letdown, but is like he working on something now. I'm sure he's been editing some movie for five years. And we'll <laughs> see three It'll different come. cuts. It from- might it's almost <laughs> done. But again, like other people do feel like he is a master. Like I was looking at all of these films, and I think all of them except Night of Cups, which we didn't even watch for the podcast, had like multiple five star reviews. Like the and especially. The New World, I think, yeah. was like very and and Badlands too. Like a lot of people think he's one of the best directors. Well, like Tree of Life made it on like the sight and sound list. I think a year after it was released, which is insane. That's where like a matter of taste comes in. Like if you find that movie and Boyhood 
and uh, episode eight of Twin Peaks: The Return, the height of cinema. <laughs> I don't relate to you, but I, I get what you're getting. I at. will say, of all the films I've seen of him, Tree of Life is the one I think that could have been. I know a lot of people regard it as a masterpiece. It could have been a the masterpiece. materials on the screen. It's just not arranged in a compelling order. That's but. the and that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure if he didn't have producers to answer to, he'd still be in the editing room tinkering <laughs> in that movie. And I do think it's cool that filmmakers have adopted that style and hopefully they use it in more concise, you know, directed ways. So I'm glad we got to at least explore him as a filmmaker. It's yeah. been done in hack ways since too. Like I'm picturing that movie y'all watched where like people in the afterlife are um, arguing for their like oh, placement totally. to like yeah 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 exist it was like in the nine world. lives or something yeah like yeah. there are people who are ripping him off and doing this like kind of hack pat way that like yeah I, I didn't see that movie so maybe I'm just judging something based on his trailer but like it's like I know a knockoff Malik when I see it right and those are made very clearly and concisely with something like concrete to say and aren't interesting at all I felt like that that movie uh, was it George Washington, the David Gordon Green? I like that one, but it's I liked been a while. it. But that's like very ma- and like upstream color, which mm-hmm. I love, is mm-hmm. very malachy. Yeah, that has been used in more um, directed ways. Yeah, like more straightforward, straightforward. Yeah, planned out. Right, <laughs> an actual shot list, scripted. <laughs> right. The actors have lines of dialogue to say. <laughs> they know what the scene is supposed <laughs> to be. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm like arguing for him to be a less interesting filmmaker in a lot of ways. So I guess I'm like, you know, shooting myself in the foot as a Cindy asked, but (laughs) (laughs) what are you going to do? Next week on the podcast, I made everyone watch this queer Austrian film from the early 90s called Flaming Ears that I picked before I watched it. And as I was watching it yesterday, I was like, I have no idea what this movie's about. The last (laughs) hour, I was completely confused. Oh, I have to see it then. (laughs) I love those sort of movies. It's on the Criterion channel, um, Flaming Ears. Uh, So, you know. Maybe a second watch will clear things up and I'll have something more concrete to say in a week, or I will just continue this Malik thing. Like, <laughs> I wish they had a clear vision and it did not come through. Listen to-